Okay, I'm glad you're here. Tell you a story. Uh, there's a teaching that I've been wanting to share for uh, a, a number of weeks now. Uh, something sort of like surprising because it's it's sort of based on something that's uh, all around us, but but I think um, very few people know about it. On on the mezuzah, you have Shema and and um, you know some of the couple of the first two paragraphs of it, and then on the back of the parchment, you actually have a an encoded message, and a lot of people haven't even seen it. But if you actually research it a little bit, you'll see on the back of a mezuzah is a a, a line of letters that make no sense whatsoever. They just seem like random letters, one after the other. And it's, it's very mysterious, actually. If you, if, you, if you look at it, you go, what is this? First of all, what's it doing here? I never knew it was here. And what, what, what sense does it make? Because it doesn't, it doesn't read like a word or any words. Um, I think that the halacha is that if it's not on the back of a mezuzah, the mezuzah is so kosher. But you'll see it on the back of mezuzahs. And if you look at it, it's really like one of these things where you do a double take. You go, what? Huh? What is this? Okay. So the, the explanation is actually, in my opinion anyway, very deep, very, very fascinating, and very beautiful, I think. Which is that if you, if you look at the divine names within Shema Yisrael, so we say Shema Yisrael, and then Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So those three references to divine names in the middle of Shema, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem. Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem is 14 letters. And if you look on the other side of the mezuzah, you'll see that, it's, that, that that mysterious encoded line is 14 letters. So there's a direct correlation more than a direct correlation, we'll explain in a minute, it's those 14 letters encoded. And what's, what's, the, what's the code? It's the letter after what it normally would be in the Aleph base. So for instance, the first, the first name, Hashem, that's really, that's Yudke Vavke, we're saying Hashem, but it's, it's the name of Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, right? So that's so, so Yud is the first letter as it appears on the mezuzah itself. But if you, if you look on the other side, the letter in the Aleph phase after Yud is Chaf. So you see the first letter of this 14-letter sequence is Chaf, and then it goes each letter after the Aleph phase. Okay, so now that we understand <laughs> what the code is exactly, That's crazy. then the question is why? Why? What, what's, what, what was the intent to institute such a thing, because it's, it's so surprising. So I saw in the Or Torah, and I'm going to try to give it over as, as best I can, but I, I, I might be adding a little bit of my own understanding into it, just full disclosure. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, one of, my, one of my favorite stories of all time, uh, I heard it from Reb Eli Chaim Karlobach, Reb Shlomo's uh, twin brother, Olav Shalom who said a story between uh, a Rebbe and his chassid, a Rebbe and his student. The, the, the Rebbe says to his student, I'll make you a deal. 
you can say my Torah is in your name as long as you don't say your Torah is in my name. So, <laughs> so ever since I heard that, I was always very, very careful. You never want to say your ideas in the name of someone else because the other person may not appreciate it. Um, so, so anyway, what we say uh, in the uh, in the evening prayer, in in Mariv, in the paragraph Hashki Venu, which is leading up to Shmona Esrei, um, I'll sort of work up to it. I'll start from the beginning. Lay us down to sleep, Hashem, our God, in peace. Raise up, raise us up, upright, our King, to life, to spread over us the shelter of your peace. Set us aright with good counsel from before your presence. Save us for your, your namesake. And now here's the here's the line that the Oratorah brings. Shield us. Remove us from foe, plague, sword, famine, and foe, and remove spiritual impediment from before us and behind us. And the shadow of your wings shelter us. For God, who protects and rescues us, are you. For God, the gracious and compassionate, are you. And that's referencing uh, Nehemiah. It says, chapter 9, 31. So, so anyway... Uh, what, what I what I think is kind of <laughs> I always sort of laugh at this because the, you see that the, the the translator was being very you know just was kind of being very sensitive here. The, the key phrase here is re- remove spiritual impediment from before us and behind us. So spiritual impediment, if you actually look in the Hebrew, it's actually the word satan. So they, the, the the English translator didn't want to say remove the Satan from before and after us, because they were like, okay, people are going to bug out. They're not going to like really understand what's going on here. So it's, it's sort of be very user-friendly and say spiritual impediment. impediment. So, so, so what is the Satan? I mean, that's sort of like, you know, sounds like a lot of hocus-pocus, but, but it's not. There is, there, is, there is negativity in the world, and it is a spiritual force. And the Gomorrah says that the Yetzirah, the Malach Hamavis, which is translated as the angel of death, and the the Satan is all one thing. It's all just it's one energy, but they um, they sort of uh, understand that that it's that it affects in in different realms, and so it, they give it the rabbis give it different names, even though it's one one energy, it's one force. So the Yetzirah would attack a person's neshama. The Malach Amavas, the angel of not so much, right, would, would attack a person's body. And the Satan is a heavenly accuser, right? But it's all one energy. It's one energy. So it says, so, so the Oratorah, Rabbi Yitzhak Eisachavir, explains something very amazing. That on the mezuzah, the reason why you have the letters being advanced in the Olive Bays is now imagine, just think about it. You're about to leave the house. You're about to embark on the next stage of your journey. Right? You understand? Like the, the this this sequence of letters on the back of the mezuzah is, so to speak, the next stage. The next stage, because it's the the, the next um, integers, if you will, of the olive base. So this is this is showing on heavenly protection for the spiritual impediments that are about to confront you. You see, so, so, so the mezuzah is actually providing this heavenly protection for those things 
before you, remember these things are now relative because you can say that those, those divine names forward and backwards. See, because this, this um, Pasuk here says, God protects and rescues uh, us. Um, wait a second, where is it? And remove the spiritual impediment from before us and behind us. So if you think of the way it's arranged in the, in the olive base, it's working before, in front of you, and behind you. You understand how it's working? Because depending on how you're looking at it, it's either the letters in front of you or the letters behind you. So, so this is a very encompassing level of protection. So, so that's, that's the thought. That's the thought. It's just another, you know, another level of spiritual genius that you see within our tradition that, that's, that's on basically every doorpost that we just didn't even know about, right? So there was a break in the action yesterday uh, at the Happy Minion. Every once in a while it happens where, you know, things don't go exactly as scheduled and oftentimes I'll, I'll sort of step up to the Bema and I'll say over Devar Torah just to smooth out the, the, the break, you know? So I had been wanting to share this thought in some context. I haven't had a chance to share this either on a Sunday or in the Minion for, for like a while. I've been wanting to share this for a while. So I thought, okay, well, I, I, let me go up there. I'll say something and here's an opportunity to say this. So I, I said that. And then right as I was finishing, the, the person who needed to come came, and so it was all nice. And then someone came up to me afterwards and said, what? why were you talking about mezuzahs just now? And I was just like, well, was that connected to something? And I said, no, I just, you know, just had this thought and, you know, just gave it over. So he says, okay. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, I got home that night. Story continues. <laughs> I got home that night, and uh, and I got a package in the mail, and it was from a, a dear friend, Mike, who who had been w- working on something. He, he said, "I want to I want to give you something. I'm going to mail it to you." And then he said, "No, I'm not going to mail it to you. Uh, I want to give it to you in person." And I was okay, but things have been busy, so we haven't been able to meet. So then he finally said, "You know what? I'm going to mail it to you." This was over a period of weeks. And so I got home last night, and what was it? It was a handcrafted mezuzah. (laughs) And that he had made from a branch that he had found and had carved the the branch into a mezuzah, you know? And just a beautiful piece of work, so so thoughtful. You know, but it was just amazing to me that he had been wanting to do it for weeks. I had been wanting to say this for weeks, and... And you had been asking, like, why are you saying this? And so, and it gave me a, <laughs> it gave me a, another appreciation of these type of, um, you know, what the world calls coincidences, you know? And I'm always trying to wrap my mind around these things. I've given talks about it and, and things like that. But it gave me just a new level of pre- appreciation of, of these things, which is that because when I when I was saying these when when I when I was saying over that thought then, you know, the last thing I thought was, oh, there is, I'm talking about mezuzahs because my soul is sensing mezuzahs and there's a mezuzah coming to you know there was no ESP on on my side of it, you know no, no nothing like that, um, and yet you see that there was a perfect 
correlation between the two. So what's the, so what's the answer? What's the thought? I think the thought is very simply this. That, and, that, and that happens certainly to me, and I'm, I'm sure to a lot of you, on a regular basis, where you'll say something and then something will happen, and you'll realize, wow, the, these two things are like together. You know? how, how, is, how did I know, or whatever it is? And I think the point is, is that you know, there's a level where you absolutely didn't know, but when you do mitzvahs, you're tapping into this, this basically, this supernatural framework where these things are all connected. And so it doesn't really have to do anything with you knew, you didn't know, you sensed it, you didn't sense it. That, that part can be completely irrelevant to the process. And in a way that's more liberating because, because you realize sort of like the greatness of the Torah system that when you're plugging in, then you're sort of like you're, you're, you're riding on all these different back roads and highways that are connections that, that you have access to that, that otherwise you wouldn't. And, and you see it sort of validated and revalidated all the time. Um, so, so there we go. Okay, so that, that's that thought. I just want to start with that. But um, I want to go back to, uh, to Avraham Avinu because we've been discussing him and we've been discussing uh, especially this, this phrase lech lecha and I want to go deeper into it um, because lech lecha is just it's such, a, it's such a phenomenal it's such a phenomenal word and it's, it's or phrase and, and it, 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 it's, it's such an overview of who the Jewish people are on a national level and on an individual level and there's just, there's just so much to it. So let's just review just a, a couple of teachings about Lechacha quickly, and then we'll get to some, 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 some new ideas on it. So, so again, let's understand that Lechacha is talking on a national level, and it's talking on an individual level. It's talking on a here and now level, and it's also talking on a spiritual level. Right? These are all the different levels. All right? so, and we're just kind of touching the surface on it. You see, you have to understand that when you're talking about Avraham Avinu and Sarah, you've got this, this, this um, duality happening at all times, which is that he himself is a person, and yet he has at that time the entire history of the Jewish people inside of him. So simultaneously, he stands for you and me, right, as an individual going through life, but he also represents the entire nation of Israel simultaneously. Now you see that, you see that dynamic very beautifully in, in Adam Harisha, because Adam, on the one hand, represents just Adam, just his own personal story, but he also represents the future of all humanity simultaneously. And you see that in, I wish I could tell you who said this, but one of the great vorts, you see that in, in, in his name itself, Adam is spelled Aleph Dalad Mem, which stands for Adam, that's him. The Mem stands for, um, or rather, the Dalad stands for David HaMelech, and the Mem stands for Mashiach. So you see that basically contained within him is the entire future history of humanity. So you have that dynamic in Avraham Avinu as well, as the, as the first Jew. He's also, he's an individual, but he's also the nation. 
both at the same time. Okay, so, so on a national level, and, and remember, just, just because I love this teaching so much, um, Reb Shlomo asks a great question, which is, you know, everybody knows, it says in, in the Gomorrah, in, in, in Masech Nida, that um, when you're in your mother's stomach, an angel comes and teaches you the entire, to- the entire Torah. And then when you're born, you get touched above the lip, and then you forget everything. So really, learning in this lifetime is more about remembering than learning. You know, that in itself is, is interesting. But, but the point is, is that we also know that at Mount Sinai, all the souls were at Mount Sinai, all the souls that were Jewish, that were ever going to become Jewish, that were not yet born, that were ever going to be born, all of those Jewish neshamas were at Mount Sinai. So the question is, that Rabbi Shlomo asked, if we already got the Torah at Mount Sinai, each and every one of us got the Torah at Mount Sinai, why do we have to get the Torah again inside of our mother's womb for? It's a great question. And the answer is also a great answer, which is that at Mount Sinai we got the, the mission statement, our, our marching order, so to speak, on the national level. What we had to accomplish as a people. But Inside the womb, each one of us gets taught what our personal mission is. Because again, there's, there's your individual mission, and then there's our national mission. And so every one of us is like Adam, if you will. Every one of us is like Avraham or Sarah, if you will. We all embody the individual component and the national component. And both of those, achieving both of those, is essential for fully realizing who we are as a person. You know, there are a lot of people who think that they can just sort of like be a Jew like on their own in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, I, I remember I had a, a dear friend and he, he would write to me like these, like really these beautiful emails and he'd say, you know, how much he wants to keep Shabbos and everything like that. And I love him to pieces. I wish him all the best. And chas v'shalom, not saying this in a judgmental way, in one iota. But I wrote back to him. It's a team sport. <laughs> you gotta, gotta move, move to a community. If you really want to do it, move to a community, you know? And anyway, he didn't. But, but the, 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 the individual aspect and the community aspect are both essential if we want to achieve who we really are. That's, that, 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 that's the point of that story. Um, and so, I remember just to digress a little bit, but but not really so much. I didn't I didn't grow up observant, and and I remember when um, when when someone told me like uh, like the whole debate about you know driving to shul on Shabbos, right? So so certain branches of Judaism will tell you, well you can drive to shul on Shabbos because otherwise you can't go to shul on Shabbos. Right, so that's not the that's not the Torah halachic approach. The Torah halachic approach is um, when you move into a community, when you pick where you want to live, pick an area within walking distance to a shul. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and saying, "What? <laughs> like, I have to do what? What are you talking about? I just pick pick where I want to live, and then." I hope it will be nearer shul, but that's not really my business. That's not really my responsibility. Like, that sounds a little heavy, doesn't it? Like, that's a little fanatical, right? 
And yet now I realize, no, 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 that actually, the individual has to be tied to the community. I mean, not like you have to, oh, this is it, whatever it is. I'm saying if you genuinely want to realize yourself, according to the Torah understanding, according to the Torah understanding, that these things go hand in hand. And it's actually a, it's actually a logical thing to, to want to live in, in a community. So, so anyway, so let's get back to this idea of lechacha. So I wanted to say, um, just just to give you a, a just to, we're just going to say quickly to, to review the point that Reb Tzadik Hakoyin says that every point in space, so geographically speaking, like if you were to pick a country, say, or pick a location, every point of space has a correlation in the realm of time. Okay, so, so for instance, so he says, Israel in space, what is Israel? That's in the realm of space. What does Israel correlate to in the realm of time? And he says, Israel correlates with Shabbos. So Shabbos is Israel in time. Or Shabbos, or Israel is Shabbos in space. Right? So if that sounds complicated, imagine just a clock face. You're looking at your watch. Like that's time, right? And now imagine there's a map. There's a map on the face of your watch. Where you can locate Israel, that's Shabbos. (laughs) So Israel is Shabbos, okay? So I wanted to apply that teaching from Reb Tzadik HaKoyim to Lech Lecha. And so when God says, journey to Israel, or to Canaan, he's not just talking about, he's not just talking about a geographical trip. Since Israel is Shabbos in time, God also commanded Avram and Sarah to journey towards Shabbos. And that Shabbos, remember, Shabbos is the soul of the world. Shabbos is the seventh day. And it's made out of a completely, it's a separate creation from the first six days of the week. And if you think of a cube, you know, like the famous thing, what's the seventh side of a cube? And you're like, wait a second, the seventh side of a cube? Wait, there's, there's, only, six, there's only six sides to a cube, right? Right? Up, down, left, right, front, back. That's six sides. But the inside, right, the inside of the cube is the seventh side. So that's, that's Shabbos. Shabbos is the is the soul of creation, right? So, so God commands Abraham and Sarah to journey toward the soul, the soul of, 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 of creation itself. Now remember, the Messianic period is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So God was also commanding Abraham and Sarah to journey toward the perfection of the world, to fix the entire world. Right? So all these things are wrapped up. So now let's say something that we didn't learn yet. Or we were saying a little bit at the over Shalashidis, but let's say it now. So so Lech Lecha. So here's a question that I have about Lech Lecha that I was wondering about for a long time. I was trying to come up with a good answer. So anyway, I like this answer, but I don't know if you will, but it was good for me. So so what's the question first? The question is, is that 
You know, there's actually, it says Lech Lecha twice in the Chumash regarding Avraham Avinu. There's the famous Parshas Lech Lecha that we've been discussing up until now, and if you ask anybody about Lech Lecha, you know, 99.9% of the people will understand that you're talking about the journey toward Israel. It's all good. But there's a second Lech Lecha that's said to Avraham, by Hashem. And where is that? And I think the reason why it's not so discussed so often is because it's, it's, in, it's toward the end of one of the greatest verses of the Torah, which is dealing with something else completely. And the kind of guy just kind of sneaks in a lech lecha in that verse, which is, tell me if this sounds familiar, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak, and then it says lech lecha, and then take him, you know. So, so you're like, wait a second. Take my son, you're not even thinking about Lech Lecha now. You're like, what is this? You know, and that's of course the great test. You know, famously the tenth test of Avram Avinu, his greatest test, which is the Akedas Yitzchak. But in that verse, in the very, very verse that 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 commands Avraham, although it says, please take. Very, very strikingly. It says, Kach na, please take. And by the way, let's just pause for this teaching because this is, to me, one of my favorite teachings. You know, no one is going to ever be asked to do anything harder than Abraham was asked with, with Yitzchak. That's, that's the greatest test ever for an individual. And Hashem, look at Hashem's language. He says, Kach na, please take. Look at how gently Hashem is speaking at that point. And this is a, a very important test for us to um, apply to ourselves because we all have voices inside of our heads, you know, and often raging. And sometimes we think that voice is from God and that God is, is speaking to us. And how is he speaking to us sometimes? Or so we think. What are you doing? <laughs> Why did you do that? Do this, do that. And, and I'm telling you right now that based on the fact that the hardest thing God ever asked anyone ever, that God spoke in a gentle voice and said, Kachna, please take, is a instructive tool to know that if you hear raging and yelling going on in your head and you think that that's God speaking to you, it's the, it's Mamash the Yetzirah. It can't be God. It cannot be God. It can be someone impersonating God inside your, you know, inner workings. But it is not God. Because you see that God doesn't speak that way. So, that's important. Okay. So now let's get back to Lech Lecha. So inside this amazing verse of, of the Akedah, there's a second Lech Lecha. So what's the, what's, the, what's the second Lech Lecha doing there? That's the question. That's the question. Now, let's just understand the beauty of this, because at least according to the Rambam, the first test of Abraham is the first famous Lech Lecha, go to Israel. And now the tenth test, according to the Rambam, is the Akedah Yitzhak. Most people will say that that's the tenth test, okay? Um... And so you have a beautiful bookends here. You have a lech lecha in the beginning at the first test and a lech lecha by the tenth test. Very nice bit of symmetry there, you know? And of course, lech lecha itself is 
beautifully symmetrical, right? Right? The same two letters repeated twice, like they're it's beautiful symmetry. Okay. So now why why is it repeated the second time? This is the question. So you know, if you think about if you if you think about going to the gym, if you if you when you begin at the gym, let's say I'm making up these numbers if you can maybe, you know, do some curls with, say, a 10-pound weight, whatever it is. But if you go to the gym on a regular basis, you'll be able to start doing it with a 20-pound weight, with a 30-pound weight, with a 40-pound weight, whatever it is. And when you were doing it with a 10-pound weight at the very beginning of the process, that was probably taxing you 100% of what you could do. But now that you're stronger, that 40-pound weight is now still taxing you 100%, but because you're a more developed person, you can do it, but you're still being tested 100% in both instances, right? So, so don't say, oh, well now, because it's really taking all my power to do the 40-pound weight. When I was doing the 10-pound weight, I wasn't working so hard. No, you were working very, very hard. You were working your hardest then. But it's a sign of your development and your growth that you can now do more. But you're still, you still want to push yourself to the limit, right? So I think that that's what's going on with the two lech lechas. That the first lech lecha was like this total test, 100% test of Avraham Avinu. But he develops himself to such a phenomenal level that we have the same words, lech lecha, because it's still testing him 100%, but now he's a greatly more developed spiritual entity at this moment in time. So now let's combine this with just a classic Torah that I think is, you know, explains so much of life, that the Kutzka Rebbe says, that he says, how does life work? That basically life is all tests. So God gives you a test, and if you pass that test, you get a harder test. And I, I always try to make the point that, that in our coddled society, we think that if you pass a hard test, like, what's the response, the divine response? You get a party. No, you don't get a party. <laughs> you actually get a harder test because now God says, okay, that was fantastic. Now let's see what else you can do. Right? These tests are opportunities. Right? You're not supposed to ask for tests, but they're opportunities to mine the inner gold, the inner light within yourself and to bring it into manifest and into the world. So, you know, there's a, um, uh, one of these sort of like, I mean this in the most covetic way, one of these self-help gurus, I, I'm forgetting what his name is, but he, he pointed out that, um, apparently this is true, that when they paint the Golden Gate Bridge, anyone who's seen the Golden Gate Bridge, it's, it's like it's this giant work of art. You know, it's, 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 it's beautiful. It's actually, it's, it's beautiful. When they finish painting it in one direction, as soon as they finish painting it in one direction, they have to start painting it again in the opposite direction because it's already resting on the other side. So you, it doesn't stop. You, you, it just, it's, it's always being painted. Why? Because that's just, that's the nature of the environment, the fog and the, the salt water and all the rest, whatever it is, it just instantly corrodes that metal. So it needs to be it needs to be painted. So so the idea for us, the lesson for us, and we'll get back to the cuts here in a second, 
The idea for us is that is that so much of us, because we've been so duped by, again, the, our coddled, relatively speaking, circumstances, we've been duped into being surprised by difficulty. <laughs> we find difficulty shocking as opposed to the normal order of the day. And, and this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is a bit of um, the corruption of the spirit that's happened in this environment that we live in. In other words, every, if you look historically, every generation, every aspect of the exile in different cultures has paid a spiritual price for being in an alien society. And part of the price that we've paid in being in this Western place and in, in America is to be shocked by difficulty, <laughs> which, is, which is bad because it makes us lazy and makes us resentful of effort. And the, the problem with that is, is that this whole world is a work session. It's one long work session. And to the extent that we're not in tune with that, we're not really maximizing our time here on earth and in this body and this, this, your soul's unique opportunity to be functioning at this historical juncture right now. It's not so simple that you're alive right now in this day and age. There are unique opportunities that you can do at this time in history that you couldn't have done 500 years ago, that you couldn't have done 1,000 years ago. So, so you have something that absolutely plays into, and this is like one of the most dramatic shifts in the history of human civilization that's going on in slow motion in front of our eyes right now. So if you have a unique contribution right now during the shift, this is going to affect, who knows, the next, I mean, Mashiach should come today, but the next thousand years, the next 500 years, who what you can do today is going to have lasting effects for generations. Can you imagine if you were the one who made the printing press? Like, everything lined up at that point for the printing press to be made. And you, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were people whose IQ was at the level that they also could have made the printing press. But they didn't make the printing press. Someone made it, and everyone else who could have made it didn't make it. So there are a lot of printing presses that can be made right now. And then that then becomes the printing press for the next, till today, next thousand plus years, whatever it is. So, okay, so let's get back to what the Kutzker was saying, that, that, that if you pass a test, you get a harder test. If you pass a harder test, you get an even harder test. If you fail that test, you get a weaker test. If you fail that test, you get an even weaker test. If you pass that test, you get a harder test. Fail that test, you get a weaker test. If you pass that test, you get a harder test. If you pass that test, you get a harder test. So it's just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth till God gets you to the level where then you can then make an advancement and then hopefully you're back on a, 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 a path of progress. Bless you. Right? So, so that's the that, that that that's the idea. So that's that's lechlecha, that's lechlecha. Each time you're being sort of like, you have to use your whole self to get to the next step, right? Okay. Now listen to this because this kind of blew my mind a little bit. 
So we're talking about how Avraham is simultaneously representing the nation of Israel, but he's also representing himself individually. It's also his unique person. So, so we know in terms of, you know, we have different um, paradigms in terms of maps of the universe, if you will. One of the maps of the universe are the ten spherot. Okay, so these are, you know, like ten levels of energy, if you will. And we know that each of the spherot contains all the other spherot. All right? So actually, if you think about that, you can really kind of like blow your mind because then each of the spherot within the spherot also contain the other spherot. <laughs> if you meditate on that, you can go to a good place. So it's like, you know, it's kind of like, a <laughs> yeah. So, but, but let's just keep it simple right now, right? So you have, um, you have the ten spherot, and in each sphere you have the ten spherot, right? So that adds up to a hundred, right? So going from Malchus, say, which is the bottom, all the way up to Keter, say, right? That's, that would be a hundred, that would be a hundred levels. Now listen to this. We have a Lech Lecha in the beginning, and then we have by his first test and a lech lecha at the at the end by his tenth test. Lech lecha is gematria one hundred. So so here you see that Abraham Avinu rose all the way, 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 all the way to the top. You know the Medrash says that when Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara says it in, in, in uh, that when Moshe Rabbeinu went to uh, received the Torah. The angels didn't want to give it to him. And so Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu the face of Avraham Avinu. Right? And said, remember, Keter, you know, it's so funny, I was wondering, so it has to be then, <laughs> I've been working on this question, I just solved it right now. So it has to be then, where do you see Keter by Avraham? Where do you see Keter by Avram? Because if we're saying he gets all the way up to Keter, where do you see Keter by Avram? So here's where you see, here's at least one place you see Keter by Avram. Because when Moshe Rabbeinu went to Shemayim to get the Torah, he went all the way up to the top. Keter, Keter is, is um, the Balaturim brings, that Keter, that, that the Saras that Adibros, the that the Ten Commandments, is 620 letters. And Keter is Gematria 620. Okay, so, so you see that Moshe Rabbeinu went to Keter, or 620 can also be the 613 mitzvahs, plus the seven mitzvahs added by the rabbis. That also adds up to 620. Either way, Keter, 620, stands for the whole Torah. So Moshe Rabbeinu is going up to Keter to get the Torah, the Torah which is Keter, and the angels are wanting to give it to him. So Hashem gives Moshe the face of Avraham, and says to the angels, this man gave you hospitality and this is the way you're treating him? And so you see that we get the Torah really in the schus of Avraham Avinu. And you also see Avraham Avinu reaching the level of Keter. And what did we just say? That Lech Lecha is 100. And each of the ten spherot have the ten spherot within them, which is going from the bottom all the way to the top, to Keter, which is 100. Now, when did he reach this level of, of achieving this test? When, um, 
by the Akedah. See, the thing is, you see, what's a very sort of counterintuitive surprising thing is, is that if you keep the mitzvahs, if you really keep the mitzvahs, I'm talking about a high level right now, it purifies the flesh as well. It doesn't just purify your soul, it also purifies your body. Such that your limbs will begin to do things in harmony with the Torah. Like, for instance, you'll just decide to drive a certain way and then you'll see someone. <laughs> or you'll turn down this corner when you never turn down that corner and something will happen. Because your body is actually in tune with something that sometimes is even higher than your thought process. And an example of this is um, Reb Shlomo said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, the lottery by Yom Kippur. So you have um, two identical goats. One goat was thrown off a cliff to its death. The other goat, identical looking, was put on the Mizbeach, on the altar, and was offered as an offering. Two very different fates for these two exactly identical looking goats. So who gets to decide which goat has which fate, right? So they had a box with two lots in them, and the, the coin would reach in, and then based on what he pulled out, one would be assigned one, the other would be assigned the other. Okay? So, so the Ishbitzer Rebbe says something amazing. How did he know which one goes to which? He, he didn't know. But, but if I were to ask you, what's the highest place in your body? So most likely, if you didn't think about it too much, you'd probably tell me your head. Right? And you know, your brain is the, that's the headquarters of the soul. Okay? That's what the Shemi Shmuel says. But watch this. You raise your hands above your head. <laughs> now it's the highest, it's the highest part of your body. It's not your head anymore. It's your hands. In other words, the body can reach a place where the flesh gets so purified. The body can reach a place where it's so in tune that it can actually go beyond where the mind can go. And so the Kohen Gadol, who's completely purified, reaches with this beyond level of himself and is able to bring down into the world which, which goat goes to which place. So, so Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu how does he pass the tenth test? So, so, so he reaches his knife up, and while while the knife is like up, like it doesn't want to move, because <laughs> because his 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 limbs understood that this was not supposed to be the outcome of this event. His limbs understood even before his mind understood. And this is a, a, an amazing um, testimony to, to what Avraham had become. See, I'll tell you something just far out, but let me, let me um, finish this thought. So at that moment, Hashem calls out, Avraham, Avraham. Now everybody knows there's a you above. This is true for all of us. There's a you above and there's a you below. Right? If you just think about it um, on a soul level, Everybody knows there's five parts to the soul. So three parts exist within you, and two parts exist outside of you. Okay, so you have the nefesh, 
ruach neshama, that's within you, and then you have the chaya and the yechida, that exists outside of you. Now, what's instructive, and everyone should just take a moment to contemplate this, the aspects of your soul that exist outside of you are gigantically larger than your physical body. Gigantically larger than your physical body. All right, so the great majority of you actually exists outside of you. The great majority of you actually exists outside of you. Okay, now I'll tell you something. And this was said by um, someone who, who wasn't Jewish, for whatever that's worth. Um, um, just to note that, I mean. But she, was a, she is a tremendous scholar. And I saw this in a TED Talk. She, she was talking about, it's, a, it's a, like one of the most famous TED Talks, but I, I, she was talking about, I, I think it was called My Brilliant Stroke. I think that was the name of it. And, and she, she was studying strokes and, and how the brain works and everything like that. So she was an authority on it, on the subject, and then she found herself having a stroke. And so she was analyzing strokes as she was having a stroke. So she had a very unique set of insights into the whole um, medical biology of it, you know? And she gives, a, she gives a TED Talk on this. Anyway, the part that got me was that she said that at a certain point, she realized that, that she has to return back into her body. And she said, because now she's, her consciousness was part of that part that was outside of her. She was in touch with that gigantic part that was outside of her. And these are her words, I'm paraphrasing, but these are her words. She said, she looked at her body and she looked at herself, so to speak, which was this enormous entity. And she said, how can I fit into something so small? Can you imagine? This was said by this, this was said by a scientist, an academic and a scientist, not 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 someone who is a mystic. She she couldn't figure out how can how can something so large, meaning me at this moment, fit into something so small. So so you should understand that the the great majority of you actually exists outside of you, you know. And it should, it, that, that, see, we were talking about this a little bit on Shabbos. And this is, I think, a, a big question. Everyone should, should try to think about this, contemplate this if, if you can. Which is, there's some people for whom th- th- this world is very real, and the unseen world is like, let's be nice and say implausible. All right? Then there are other people who feel like this world is real and the next world is real. And then there's still other people who feel that the next world is actually more real than this world. And so so what I would ask everyone to ask themselves is which category are you in? Which, which category are you in? Are you someone who believes that there's this world and the next world? Who knows? Maybe. People seem to be fixated on it. I don't know. Or are you someone who's in the category of this real is real and the next world is, is, is real? Or are you in the category of someone that the next world is actually more real than this world? So, so figure out which category you're in. 
or which category you'd like to be in. <clears throat> and then ask yourself this question. Do my actions in my life right now reflect this belief? Because to the extent that you actually, for instance, believe that the next world is more th real than this world, and that's not even on a belief level, it just kind of just makes sense to you. It's just logical to you. Then, ideally, we're living a life that's consistent with that level of belief. You see, so you have a you above and you have a you below. And Reb Shlomo said, I heard him say one time, that who are the broken people in this world? The people whose below is not connected to their above. Right? Our below and our above have to be connected. That's, 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 that's the thing. Now, let's go back to Avram. I want to tell you something from the Mower Vishemish. Something amazing, and then we'll finish up. He says that, like, Avraham and Sarah, by the way, Avraham and Sarah, both, had become so exalted, so exalted, in terms of the levels that they reached, and they hadn't had any children. And why? Because they were kind of like more an angelic than people. You know, they had almost sort of like, spiritually speaking, sort of almost like e evolved out of that kind of biological category of being able to produce children, you know? So, so, so Hashem blesses them he says, in one, the angel says, in one year, you're going to have a baby. Listen to this. This is really far out. And you have to understand, this was said approximately 200 years ago. What, did, what does that mean when God said, through, through the angel, right, that in another year you're going to have a baby? Hashem was putting the dimension of time over them because they had sort of gone outside of time because they had become so spiritual. So he... So hopefully this idea is clear now. Um, by adding the dimension of time, which is a physical component to this world. Remember, time is a creation. That's, that's one of the things I heard in the name of the Vilna Gon about the word breishis, that when Hashem said the word breishis, that he created time, which is... You know, an understanding that, that physicists have only more recently understood, that, that time itself is a creation. So by saying that in one year's time you're going to have children, Hashem put this dimension of time on Avraham and Surah and sort of brought them back into sort of more the realm of, of this world, and they were able to, to have children. Uh, very striking. Now, the more of a Shemesh... Uh, Working with the Zohar also um, brings this teaching, another amazing, amazing teaching um, that I, I, I had a question on, but, but now I understand it much better, thank God, which is that before Avraham and Sarah were able to have children, don't think, God forbid, that they're, um, when they were together, that their union wasn't producing anything, that it was for nothing because they, they didn't have any you know, physical children. Rather, 
The Zohar brings that when Avraham and Sarah were together all, these, all this time before the birth of Yitzchak, that they were actually creating souls. And it goes on further to say that these would be the, the souls of future converts to Judaism. Now, so, which is a mind-blowing teaching. Now, so what's the question? What's the question? Like, I wondered, you know, this is just <laughs> sort of me and my, my smallness. I just wondered in a here-now level, like, um, this person right now is converting to Judaism here and today, like the person who you know, who you're interacting with, whatever it is. Did Avram and Sarah really make that person's soul? I mean, here we are in 2016, like, like 3,000 years ago, that soul was really made? Like, is that for real? Like, how, 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 how seriously can we take that? But now I think I understand what the Zohar is saying in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a much, much clearer way. Because, because Avraham and Sarah were beyond the dimension of time at this stage in their life, the souls that they were minting were absolutely timeless. So what difference does it make if that soul comes down now or a thousand years or two thousand, three thousand? What difference does it make? It was, it was created outside of the realm of time. So, so it's as relevant that it should come down today as, as, as 3,000 years ago. There's, there's, no, there's no problem whatsoever because time is no longer a factor. And then Hashem blesses them through the angel with, with time. And now, and now they're in this world and now they have Yitzchak. Something amazing. Something amazing. So one more teaching, just to um, finish off. There's uh, another teaching that I've struggled with for a long time, where it says, you know, there's a, a, f- a famous question that all the rabbis are asking, which is, Avraham has just had his bris, um, and it's the third days in the most pain, and it says Hashem comes to Avraham Avinu to, to, to comfort him, to visit the sick. And it says that we, we, we learn to visit the sick from the fact that Hashem visited Avraham at this moment in his recovery. So, you know, to imitate God, to, to learn the ways of God. So, so, uh, so then Avraham is in the middle of communing with God, and then he sees these three angels, which don't look like angels. They look like um, idol-worshipping Arabs, actually. And Avraham runs to them. And so... Everyone gets very excited by this and says, wait a second, what's, what's going on? You're, you're in the middle of talking to God and you, you see three people who you want to give hospitality to and you, you run to them. Is that, is that proper behavior? And, you know, across the board, everyone says a, a, a thousand percent, absolutely. And, and in fact, we learn an even greater principle from this, which is that it's even, that the, the, the mitzvah of hospitality, of hospitality is even greater than receiving the Shekhinah because he was in the middle of communing with God, that's receiving the Shekhinah. And now he goes to bring in guests, that's hospitality, and we see that there was no problem with this. So we see, okay, hospitality trumps what he had been doing up until then. Okay. So now... Based on what we were saying earlier, that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to receive the Torah from heaven, that, that the angels didn't want to give it to him. And then Hashem gives Moshe the face of Avraham, and, and Hashem says to the angels, this, this is the man who gave you hospitality, and this is, this is how you treat him? 
And so they back off. And so then Moshe is allowed to get the Torah and, and bring it back down. So maybe this is what the teaching is saying. Why would hospitality, because here you see hospitality becomes the critical element of bringing the Torah from heaven down to earth. Now perhaps we can see why hospitality is greater than receiving the Shekhinah. Because receiving the Shekhinah, like communing with God, that's a process of going up. But Torah, Judaism, isn't just about going up. It's about going up and then bringing that light back down. You see, when you, when you have a guest, like there, that guest is, is on, on some level an emanation of, of Hashem. Because, you know, embodied in that guest is, this, is the light of the mitzvah. And so, so you take that light of Hashem and you, you bring it down, you bring it into your home, you, you, you give it food. So, so, in other words, hospitality isn't, is, is, is about bringing the above back down below, which is, you know, the core of Judaism. Whereas receiving the Shekhinah is just going up. Hospitality is taking that, that, that upward movement and then bringing it back down. And while you see it with Avraham giving hospitality to the guests, that here he was communing with Hashem, that's Avraham going up. But then you see that he takes the guests, which is even greater, and he brings them into his tent. That's taking the light of the mitzvah and bringing it back down. And so you see that same dynamic by, by Moshe going up to heaven, but Moshe going up to heaven alone to get the Torah wasn't successful. Only when Hashem gave him the face of Avraham and said to the angels, this is the Avraham who gave you hospitality, was Moshe then able to take the light of the Torah and the, the tablets of the Torah back down. So, so, so this then is, is perhaps why hospitality is even greater, because it's more in fulfillment with the the, the, the mission statement of Judaism, which is to take the light from above and to bring it below. And with this in mind, we can finally conclude with the famous shita, the famous um, understanding of Rabbeinu Yonah. He was a Rishon, so he's working about a thousand years ago. And he says that the tenth test of Avraham Avinu was actually buying Moras Hamachpela, which is the, the cave of the patriarchs where he buries uh, Sarah. And the Zohar says that's the, the entrance into the, the Garden of Eden. So this deserves a, a little bit of explanation as well. Um, the mayor of Ishemesh says something very beautiful. You know, if you, if you look in the Torah, it's called Moras Ha-Machpelah, meaning the cave of the patriarchs. It could just be Moras Machpelah. Why Moras Ha-Machpelah? So... Machpela has the, the, the root of the word of that is kafel, which means to double. So he says that Morris ha machpela, ha is the letter he, that it's the doubling of the letter he. So, so that, that that is hinting at the two he's in the yudke vavke. So now we have a question. So what does Morris ha machpela have to do with the two he's in the name of Hashem? So I'd like, I, I, I'd like to give my, my explanation. I, I'm not sure what the mayor of Hashemesh says on this. Um, maybe something similar, I don't know, but I, I want to give my explanation based on a Torah that I learned from Reb Shlomo in the name of Reb Tzadok 
You see, the letter He in the Yud Ke Vav Ke, and remember, always picture like the Yud above, and it's coming down like a ladder, and it's sort of a map of the worlds. So, so you have Yud, and underneath the Yud you have a He, and He is a vessel. So the bottom He is, is stands for this world. That's sort of a vessel holding the light for, for this world. But then above that you have a, another He, which is closer to the Yud, right? That's very exalted, that's above. Um, and that Reb Kakoin stands for Olam Haba, the next world. And it makes sense if you think of the He as a, as a vessel, it's right underneath the light of the Yud. So it's, it's holding a very, very exalted light, which is appropriate for the next world. So now with that in mind, perhaps this is what Mors Hamach Pela, the doubling of the He means. Because the Zohar says that this cave was the entrance into the Garden of Eden, into the entrance into the next world. So it would make sense that Mors Hamach Pela would encompass both He's. The, the bottom hay, which stands for this world, and the, its entry point into the top hay, which stands for the next world. Okay, so let's get back to Rabbeinu Yonah. So Rabbeinu Yonah says that the tenth test of Avraham was not the Akeda. The tenth test of Avraham was actually purchasing Moras Hamachpela. And if you read the encounter in the Torah, you see in Chayesari, you see that, that Avraham had a very hard time with... Uh, with um, Ephron, who, who is the opposite of the rabbinical saying, say little and do much. He said a lot and he did very little. First he says the whole thing is free, and then by the end of the negotiation, he start, he's charging him absolutely a king's ransom for, for, for this property. And, um, and so the question is, after someone does the, the Akeda and flies out of this world, meaning to say that the exaltedness of Avraham Avinu after he passes this 10th test. And by the way, I, I hinted at the teaching before, but let me finish it now. When, when Avraham Avinu raised his knife, you know, his arm didn't want to move because he was so pure and exalted. His limbs understood something his mind didn't even understand. Hashem calls out Avraham, Avraham. And so we said there's a you below and a you above. And at this moment, the Avraham below reached to Avraham above. That's Avraham, Avraham. And um, so, so after Avraham reaches this amazing level where, you know, he's like left this world basically. But that's not his 10th test. His 10th test is now, can you be that Avraham, Avraham while negotiating a business deal with someone who wants to rip you off? That's, that's the final test. And again, that goes back to the idea of hachnasis orchim, that hospitality is even higher than makabling the shekhinah, than receiving the divine light, because it's about, it's about the ninth test, the akeda, like transcending this world, but then being able to come back down, bringing that light back into this world, and being a normal functional member of society, to be able to operate even in difficult, annoying situations. That's the Jewish ideal. That's the Jewish goal. And um, as Rip Shlomo would say, that the hardest thing in the world is to have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. But, but we, we, we see that model in Avraham so beautifully and we're so privileged to have him as our Holy Father.